Welcome to the teaching ministry of C4 Church. Uh, good morning, C4 family. Good morning, C4 Church. Really glad that you're here this morning on this beautiful uh, summer, well, our last summer weekend uh, together. And good morning again to you watching or listening online, whether you're part of uh, C4, whether you attend another church, whether you don't go to church at all, whether you live in Canada or around the world. We are so glad that you're joining us here this morning. And uh, if, if everyone's got their Bible this morning, physically or virtually, we'd love you again to turn to the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. We're going to be in chapter 4, and so you can navigate or turn there, and we'll get ready to go. Two weeks ago when I, uh, I, I came up to preach, I, I just said we'd got back from a family vacation. And uh, my, my wife and my kids were still down east in the Bay of Fundy, but I had flown back the night before and, and preached in the morning. Uh, my wife was going to be staying with the kids for probably another week and a half or two weeks, and I was going to be here. Someone said, oh, you now are getting a real vacation. Interesting. Uh, dangerous. That was something in my small group. I'll tell my small group later. But I was here, and uh, as I was, I was here on Sunday, things were fine, and then Monday, and then, and then Joe phoned me Monday night and said, listen, John, I think we're going to come home early. Uh, the kids just are really, really getting sick, and we got to come home. I said, excellent, come on home. I know it's unexpected, but let's do this. And so my, my wife on that Tuesday morning decided to pile into the minivan with my three children, who are all under four, with my father-in-law, and drive 16 hours straight home. And yeah, awesome people. So uh, off they, they began, and I, was, I said, okay, the house needs to be ready. Everything needs to be good when they get home, because that is a, a serious task, even for adults, let alone with kids. So they start driving across the country through the United States and up through Canada uh, to get home. And so I come to work on Tuesday, everything's fine, and then go home, the house is clean, and really it actually was, and uh, come back here, came back here for a meeting in the evening with Dave and a few others, and then got home around 9.30. And everything was normal, and everything was good. Nothing was unexpected. Everything was expected. I mean, a little unexpected. They were coming home early, but things were good. I walk into my house at 9.30 at night, and I'm making sure the house is ready. And I just I happen to run upstairs uh, to go into my son's room just to put something in there. And so this is what happens. I open the door to my son's room, which is closed. The light is on. I don't remember turning it on, but, you know, that happens. And as I open the door in one fell swoop, I look up and see the light, and right in front of my face is a bat flying. Now, I I want to say I immediately slammed the door closed, and I did not scream like a little girl. (laughs) I have every right to do that, but I did not. Now I have a quandary. My wife and my father-in-law are brave souls bringing three children home for 16 hours, and I've got a bat in the house. This is an unexpected event. So then I'm like, I'm such an urbanite. What do I do? I don't have a gun. Like, what? I don't know what to do. Uh, I have never dealt with this before. And so I go across to my neighbor, uh, to Terry, and I said, Terry, do you have a fishing net? And he's like, at 10 o'clock at night, uh, he's like, why do you need a fishing net? I said, I got a bat. He said, oh, don't let it land on you. It may bite you and give you rabies. Fantastic. (laughs) Fantastic. I'm really excited. And he's like, no, and I don't have a fishing net. So uh, what do I do now? So I go over to my father-in-law's house. Of course, they're not there. I go in the basement praying that there's some type of net. I'm thinking, do I use a bucket? Do I, I don't a blanket. Well, he has a fishing net. So I'm like, okay. I'm going to war. And so I get into the house. I put on a winter jacket. I put on a toque. I put on gloves. I put on jeans. I put on shoes. I put on a scarf. I'm ready. I've got my fishing net. And I walk up. Now, this is great because you'll get this. I'm walking up the stairs, and I'm creeping. It's in a closed bedroom. 
So I'm creeping up the stairs like it's going to somehow come through the wall. And, and so I get to the door. And now, now I'm nervous because of, you know, rabies. And so I'm down like this and I'm opening the door and I'm looking, right, very carefully to see where the vampire, right, that's going to come destroy me is. And as I'm, I'm looking around, it's not there. And I'm like, oh my goodness, it's escaped. My wife is going to freak out. We're going to have bats over our little children. So I go and I've got it. And suddenly out of the corner of my eye, it's behind me. Oh, so it's just there. Now, of course, you know, bats are actually very good animals. They eat everything we hate. So this is good. I realize it's smaller than the palm of my hand. So I see it. I've got the net. And I'm like, okay, I've got, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to man up and deal with this. So, so I go to do it. Well, of course, bats are smart and are radar oriented. As I swing, bam, off it goes, starts flying around. Then I do scream like a little girl at that moment. <laughs> I did. I'm ducking. It goes over my head. I scream again. Now it's actually flying in the middle of our house, goes downstairs. I'm running in full winter February gear down the thing. The thing is in our living room, our family room. Suddenly it's in our kitchen. I'm like, this is so bad. It's, how am I going to deal with this? I'm swinging wildly. I just, I really wish someone had YouTube this. What is going, what is this guy drinking in this house? So running around. It goes back upstairs into our bedroom. So I run up and I slam the door closed and I'm still ducking, though it's not even around me, and I see it. So at that moment, I'm going to, okay, I got to get this out of our bedroom. So finally, in midair, I caught it. And I was so impressed. So at that moment, I catch him like, that's right. That's right. That's right. Right? So I've got this thing and I'm really proud of myself having this man moment. And then I realize, of course, bats are living and they don't like being in nets. And so I look down and suddenly realize, because I don't know much about bats, they have little hands. And the thing is crawling through the net, looking at me. I screamed like a little girl again. And so at that moment, I'm like, well, I don't know what to do. So I just started swinging the net, not to kill it. It shouldn't die because I'm a little girl. But I just, I'm swinging it. I'm running down the stairs like this, get the front door open, throw the thing out, and it leaves. And I'm like, oh. And my wife arrives an hour later. Oh. Now, if there is a word to describe my evening other than I grew up, it's this. It is unexpected. When I walked into my house, I did not expect to find a bat. When I walked into my son's room that was closed and, oh, by the way, has no access to the attic in any way. I still have no clue how it got in there. I didn't expect it. And as I was thinking about that experience, if there is one word that describes from a human perspective the series we've been going through this whole summer, the series of Ruth, from a human perspective, it is unexpected. Unexpected tragedy, unexpected loss, and unexpected blessing. But what's most significant as we end this this most, I would say, profound summer series for our family, we need to be re-reminded that for God, none of this was unexpected. From a human level, it feels unexpected, but from God's side, all of this is expected. See, like I've been teaching you this summer with Dave, one of the the, the most important theme in the book of Ruth goes beyond culture or or love or, or romance or duty or fidelity. The most significant theme in the book of Ruth is the word providence. God's sovereign act of work in the now. God's sovereign work at this moment, when God chooses to break into time and space from where he lives in the heavens and do a work in the now. 
You see, we experience unexpected things, but God, nothing scares him. He never screams like a little girl. He he walks into situations because he knows what's going on. Ruth is about God's hand in the family of Ruth. Ruth, the whole book, is actually a glimpse into God's work, into history, and even a call to see God's work in in your life and our life together. Now, as we turn to Ruth chapter 4 to end this series, the final scene moves us, interestingly, from the city gate all the way back to Naomi's house, where actually we find joy. Actually, there's a party going on, what we would call in our culture in North America, a baby shower. The conclusion of this book is full of joy, and it's a fitting place for us actually not only to end this series, but to end our ministry year since the theme of last year was joy. And so we end in our scriptures in a place of joy. Here God has birthed hope and a bright future. And remember, out of things like risk, racism, famine, death, barrenness, God has been faithful to himself and faithful to Ruth and Naomi and faithful to his people. And as all of heaven is not only watching but acting, we as the readers of Scripture are now moved into a little home of now a proud grandmother with a little baby surrounded by the many women of the village we now call Bethlehem. Thousands of years later, things have rarely changed. When a baby is coming or born, women gather and eat and talk and pass the baby around and give advice whether it's wanted or not, then eat some more, give presents and celebrate. The beginning of the end of our story starts just before this baby shower in verse 13. It reads like this, hear the word of God this morning. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And then he went to her and the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. So finally, we who've been walking through this whole book get to attend a marriage. Finally, with all the ups and downs, all the legal proceedings now concluded, it says that Boaz and Ruth become husband and wife, and they get to start a new family. Ruth has moved in this amazing book from enemy and worshiper of a demon god named Chemosh to a foreigner, to a servant, to a maiden, and now to Boaz's wife. In that culture, it is nothing but impossible, and yet by God's hand, All things are are possible. Ruth now has shifted allegiance too, of course, from Naomi to Boaz because she is now married to him. But the allegiance and the love and the relationship is far from over. In older translations or others, it says that Boaz and uh, Ruth went home and they made love. They consummated their marriage. The two become one flesh. And in time, whether it was their first time together or many times after, it says that they have a son together. But notice in verse 13, because it's significant, it says that God himself intervenes. Yahweh shows up, and he is the one who gives life, and he is the one that opens Ruth's barren womb and allows this child to be born. God has profound intention for this young boy. In our unfolding drama for a quick moment, God steps out from among the shadows on the center stage. This son is born in a culture, of course, that has high priority with boys. This son could continue the family name. This son could save the family line now from elimination in both an eternal, cultural, and personal way. So we should sit back as readers of Ruth with joy. We're as glad as the actual family members to see that not only the marriage took place, but there's now a baby. But then God steps off the stage. And not only does he step off the stage, interestingly, Ruth, steps off the stage too. 
The book, though named after her, really does not end with her. It actually ends with the woman who starts the whole conversation, her mother-in-law named Naomi. The one that left, do you remember Bethlehem with her husband and two sons and came back alone with Ruth? The men were dead. The other sister-in-law had gone back to her people, her culture, her God. Remember back in our second week in the series when both destitute women, Ruth and Naomi, come back to Bethlehem. It interestingly says the village shows up, but it is the women of the village that meet her. It says in in verse 19 in chapter 1, So the two women went on until they came back to Bethlehem. And when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi. She, she had been gone for a decade. Well, now it's the same women that are still with Naomi, but now in the house of a woman whose life has been radically changed since chapter 1. Verse 14 in chapter 4 reads like this. The women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout all of Israel. In the middle of the baby shower, in the middle of giving jimboree and stuff, her old friends and their daughters share in the excitement. They, they, they worship God in between tea and cucumber sandwiches or whatever they would eat. They thank God for his work, that he did not leave her alone and has provided all she needs. And notice, this is significant. No longer is Boaz called the kinsman redeemer. That is a relative that was willing and able to save, buy back, and hold the family in safety. This time, the child... This little baby sitting on Naomi's lap, he's called the kinsman redeemer. It is the only time that I could find in the Old Testament where a child is given this profound physical and religious and emotional designation. The little crying child or laughing child, the one being passed around between all the women, is the one that would carry on Elimelech's line. The one who had decided because God had decided to break the cultural, shameful childlessness of Ruth and Naomi. And now is starting to replace the bitter mourning for their family's demise with joy. Now this is a setup. This is significant for us this morning. Because this is a baby who is called a kinsman redeemer who was born in Bethlehem. Do you see the connection? See, the next time we will see this repeated is in Bethlehem. And a young virgin named Mary will have a child. And angels will show up and will declare to both Mary and Joseph and to shepherds and later at two to kings of the east. What? That this child is a kinsman redeemer. This child is a savior, for he is Christ the Lord. See, this baby, Ruth's child, is a foreshadow of the coming of baby Jesus, who's going to be a kinsman redeemer for everybody. So here in this thing, we begin to see that 3,000 years before Jesus, the scene is already being set. Why? Because God is coming for the world, whether we want him or not. The cry of the women goes farther than we thought. Never forget, I'd never considered this. Boaz was still an older man. So the family was still in danger without a son. And so this little boy, this grandchild, though he could only even be weeks old, secures a future. See, if Boaz was to suddenly die, then Ruth and Naomi would be in the exact same spot we started with in chapter 1. But since now he is born, he would inherit the land, money, food, and they'd still be saved. The women looking into the eyes filled with new life. The, the women admiring the color of the baby in the sense of just the vitality of life. Not only thank God, not only know that God has brought safety and, and profound blessing, but they pray something, that he become famous. 
This is the echo of the prayer of the elders from last week at the gate. Well, the answer, of course, is he does become famous. Not only did this little baby become famous in Israel, but to billions of afterwards. I mean, think about it. We're sitting here in Durham in Canada in 2012, and we're still reading his experience and story. Every person who owns a Bible physically or virtually on earth has this baby's name. Billions of people have heard the story. These women at that baby shower had no clue what they were praying Of course, the child was special because every baby born is special. But there's more here. Not only did his coming bring light after the longest night for a family, but he's setting the stage for God to come in flesh. The woman surrounding the proud and restful and, and peaceful grandmother say this to Naomi. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. He's going to give you joy in life again. Many of you that are grandparents here or online today, will confirm this. I've heard this from my own parents and my mother and father-in-law and for conversations from many of you. You, you tell me that as, as a grandparent, love suddenly comes back in a new way with grandchildren. A new or old dreams that seem to be forgotten or lost have new life again. Their very presence gives you comfort and hope, conciliation. Uh, uh, for, for, the many, for many would, would actually say it brings vitality The child is reviving her sagging and broken spirit. I think many grandparents would say, John, that's true, amen. But the other reason why we have vitality is because when they freak out, we can give them back and go on a cruise. (laughs) Many grandparents say we love the vitality, and when they freak out, we've done that. Now you get to deal with it. I'm out. But the truth is, I think we all know that the next generation being born does something to your heart. And that's the same in every culture and every background. And the women knowing this, because they themselves have experienced this themselves, turn to Naomi and say, this child is going to bring you such great joy. The women at this moment in the middle of the baby shower turn from the little boy in the room and actually think on and praise the woman named Ruth, who, by the way, is not present at the shower. They say, listen, Ruth is nothing but amazing. Verse 15, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who's better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. This is a huge statement in a land where it was male first and female second. In a land where seven did not only mean ideal or perfect, but actually was God's number. These women say, Ruth has been better to you, Naomi, than any son that you have lost or any sons you could have had. Even if you, Naomi, had seven boys in your family, and in our culture, we considered you the most blessed woman among all of us, Ruth would have outdone them in her her love towards you. I mean, this is no idle accolade. Her commitment to Naomi we have seen through this series is nothing but just just mind-blowing. It starts, right, in the time of famine. Think about this. It starts in the worst time, not the best time. Elimelech, her husband, that's Naomi's husband's died. Kilion and Malion, both sons, have died. Ruth and Orpah are there, and, 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 and Naomi says, just get out of here. I'm an old woman. I cannot help you. I, I, listen, I need to go home and die. Go back to your people. Go back to your God. I can't help you. And Ruth turns around in verse 16 in chapter 1 and says, Don't you urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will become my people and your God will become my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me. I invoke God, she says. May it be ever so severe if anything but death separates you from me. 
And more and more, her initiatives in the field, her courage in the middle of the night at the threshing floor, her dedication to keeping the family line alive by pursuing Boaz, an older man, when she could have had her pick of younger, more virile men. See, faith, honesty, risk, loyalty, conversion, all found in this woman named Ruth. Well, as all of this is being said, as food and conversation grows around this proud grandmother, it simply says what we know is going to happen. Verse 16, then Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, and cared for him. The the little boy, whether crying or cooing, (coughs) is in that sweet spot, is in that tender moment, now in the lap of an older gray-haired woman. All the loss, her husband, her sons, now seem somewhat distant, now seem maybe not as painful, for new life was in front of her. What a change. As I was preparing this this week, I was imagining her thinking back to the first time she returned after 10 years and faced all these women that were sitting now in her living room. I imagine her remembering what she cried out to these same women in verse 20 of chapter 1. Don't call me Naomi, she said through tears. Call me Mara. Because the Almighty has made my life so very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Don't make any mistake, she said to the whole village. This is not just me. God did this to me. Not the devil, not me, him. The words ringing in her mind, now seeming like a bad dream, yet rooted so profoundly in holy history. Like all sorts of honest and guttural cries in the Bible, Jonah, Jeremiah, Job, Elijah, David, oh yes, and even Jesus. Why have you done this? Where are you, God? Why would you ever do this? What did I ever do to you? God does not always give the answer of why. But he does send peace that makes no human sense to those that truly know him. And even when he chooses not to answer because he is sovereign, he is the potter and we are the clay, he does tend to give those crying out, everyone ready? A new vocation. Job, if you think about his story, was never answered. I mean, if anyone has been through devastation, he has been through devastation on every level. And yet he chooses not. He questions God. He cries out to God. He never curses God like his wife tells him to do. And at the end of Job, if you have the chance to read it, God shows up in all of his holiness and his power and his sovereignty. And he says, Job, who are you? Who are you? Did you create the stars? Were you there when I overcame this and that? Did you, did you make the earth? And amazingly, though he refuses to answer Job's why, he still gives Job peace and profound new life. Notice this in the text this morning. Naomi is never given the answer why this all happened. But she is given a new joy and a new calling for the next generation. Some of you sitting here today, whether you are young or old, who have been through tragedy, abuse, pain, early loss, death, all of these things, you must have permission as a person of faith to cry out, to question. You need to read Lamentations. That's why I preached through it three summers ago. So you would have a place to cry out. But then you need to come to the place and say, oh God, I know that you are inherently good. And though I am struggling with you, what is my renewed vocation so I do not become embittered and make my bitterness an idol that chokes out my faith. 
Some of you need to come to the place and say, God, you may not give me an answer, but give me peace. You may not give me an answer, but tell me, tell me now what is my next role? Because amazingly, God sometimes, when he gives us our next assignment, gives us profound joy that we think is impossible. That's an amen moment, by the way. This is significant. Many people die as Christians embittered because they never read Job and Naomi's story and others carefully where God says through tragedy, through tragedy, I will give you new vocation. The woman said, living there, said in verse 17, Naomi has a son and they named him Obed and his father, he was the father of Jesse who was the father of David. Obed, interestingly, by the way, means servant of God. We started our story with a father named Elimelech, whose name means God is king, and then he suddenly dies, and everything goes to pot, and we ask, well, is God king? Is God really in control? And then we know by the end of the book, yes, he is, and God is not only king, and God is not only doing a new thing, but actually through this son named Obed, a new work is about to take place globally. Now, at this moment, most people stop preaching and go to the end. Because the next six verses are a genealogy, a list of names. This is Ancestry.com, Old Testament style, okay? It's a list of names that just seem to be there. They tend to be boring, and no one wants to try to publicly pronounce the names, me included. But let's be honest. This is Scripture. And what's really interesting is we need to read this so-called boring part of Ruth. Because it actually has the most power for us and not only brings the story of Ruth to conclusion, but actually begins to open up the new beginnings we need to see how God is working at C4 today. This also reminds us in our culture, whether we like it or not, that we are products of our parents and grandparents and great-grandparents. Now, God may move into our life and do radical things, but we cannot fully say, I am not that. Our history matters. History is important. So we do not repeat things, that we're honest about who we are. But also, history matters in the Christian movement, and here's why. Everyone ready? Because our movement is not ethereal. Our movement is not just myth. Our movement is grounded in actual history itself. Our movement lives or dies in the midst of real history. So this is how the book of Ruth ends. This, then, is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Abinadab, that's my interpretation of that, Abinadab the father of Nation or Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David, who we all know, if you know your Bible, as King David. So we read these names. We've never met any of these people. We know a little bit about some, but most of them we don't know. What's the point? A few things. Number one, we need to be reminded that God is working through ordinary people in the ordinary, boring, normal rhythms of life to accomplish his great works. And it's this actual genealogy that sets the stage for some of the most explosive and profound works of God that interrupt history. Like it says here, out of this son will come David, the king who will write the Psalms, who will establish Israel. His son will show up. His name will be Solomon. He will build the first and most significant table, t- temple. And out of this family, Jesus, the Redeemer, will come. The one that we sang to this morning. There is over a billion people in the next 24 or past 24 hours that actually have taken communion and have sung to Jesus. Why? Because of Ruth and Boaz. See, the next time you find this list, this boring list, this genealogy, 
interesting in this form and way is thousands of years later in the book of Matthew. If you've got a Bible, just turn there really quickly. Chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1 is the Christmas story. Unlike Mark who skips it and Luke who does other things with it, Matthew actually starts the Christmas story with a genealogy. Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 reads like this. You online, do this with us. Turn there. It says, A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the, the, Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zahar, and whose mother was Tamar. Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram. Here it is, Ram the father of Abinadab. We just read this, Abinadab the father of Nation. Matthew went back, I guarantee you, and read Ruth. Nation the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now, I'm going to, would you just now skip? Verse 16. I'm not going to do the whole thing. Okay. Verse 16. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, whom was born Jesus, who was called the Christ. See, we missed the, we missed the greatest hope in the story if we skipped the boring part, supposedly. Because where Ruth ends, our faith begins. Matthew recording the birth of Jesus starts with one of Ruth's lists. And this list informs us that God has been working through history and he's coming for us, he's with us, and he uses everyday people. Now, as we conclude this message, we need to ask ourselves a pungent, an important question. See, many people have said, I've really appreciated Ruth. It's, it's filled in the gaps for me. I, I understand more about holy history than I, than I, I used to. I, I never saw the connections. I, I learned what feet and gate and all sorts of other interesting things mean. But like I said two weeks ago and last week, just because we have new information and we have more cognitive knowledge, which is deeply important, that's not the essence of today. The question that we now need to ask ourselves is this. What is the living God of heaven and earth saying to us? What is he saying to us as a church? What is he saying to you? What has he been saying to you through this series or to us communally? Let me end with a few thoughts that are the overarching thoughts that come down and actually make life at least livable. One of the first things we learn in Ruth that is so significant, whether you are a 20-something, a teenager, a child, you are an adult, th this matters for all of us. And it's this. Knowing God is sovereign is the anchor in our journey through life. Let me say this again. Please listen online. Listen. Knowing that God is truly sovereign is the most important anchor in our journey through life. The story of Ruth was all about the unexpected. It was a real story of human tragedy, but it is also a real story about divine triumph. It is full of the unexpected that brought pain and joy and in the end salvation to the world. Yet, when you live through tragedy without seeing the full story unfolding, Ruth and Naomi teach us to anchor our life, call us to look at, to interpret good and bad through God's will and his hand. As one pastor preached, my point is there is a great advantage in knowing that God is sovereign over the pain and pleasure of life. Is the old Heidelberg Catechism that ancient Reformed catechism that asked this question, what is the advantage to know that God has not only created us, but by his providence still upholds all things? Listen to this 400-year answer from the Lutheran tradition. 
or the Reformed tradition. The answer that knowing that God is in control is this, that we will be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and that in all things which may hereafter befall us, we place our firm trust in our faithful God and Father, that nothing will separate us from the love of God since all creatures are in his hand and that without his will they cannot do so much as move. He writes, the life of godly, the godly is not a straight line to glory, but they do get there and God sees it. There is hope for us beyond a cute baby and a happy grandmother. The story points forward to David. David for, points forward to Jesus. And Jesus points us this morning forward to the resurrection of our physical bodies, where there will be a time where there will be no more mourning, no more death, no more crying, no more pain, because the old order of things are going to pass away. Here's what he writes, and this is what I say to myself and you this morning. The best is yet to come. That is the unshakable truth about the Christian movement, and it flows from an obedience and faith in Jesus. He writes this, and I'm so glad he did it. He says, I say to you who are young, who are strong and hopeful still, and have all your dreams in front of you, and I say to you that are old, for whom your outer nature is quickly wasting away, the best is yet to come, and God is at work in your darkest of times to get you there. If you do not believe in a sovereign God, your faith will collapse. And yet Ruth and Naomi teach us that God is in control. And even in the worst times, God will work out things for his glory and our freedom. We will not experience full healing in this life. We will not be spared tragedy and pain. Jesus said this so clearly. And many churches need to rehear this again. He did not say there's guaranteed healing. He did not say you would not be afflicted with disease. He would not say you would not be touched by evil. He said actually in this world there will be what? many troubles, but I will never leave you or forsake you. The resurrection of Jesus is the culmination of sovereignty, and we, young and old, need to continually run back, not only to the Christmas story, but to the Easter story, because in the Easter story, we know that everything is going to be all right. God is sovereign. He's working out history for his glory and for his kingdom and for all of us. Does not give all answers, but he gives us hope. Ruth teaches us that this has to be central in our Christian worldview. A few other things that we learn from Ruth that bring it home even closer out of pain or prosperity, and it's this. In the book of Ruth, we begin to start seeing God's heart for the world. I, by the way, have not preached on this yet. Everyone, listen closely. <laughs> Go back to the Matthew passage just for a moment, would you? Look at the name of the women that are added by Matthew. They're not in, by the way, Ruth's account or the author Ruth. They're in Matthew. Do you notice? Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Uriah's wife. Now you say, well, John, why did he add these four women? Let me tell you. Everyone ready? Every one of these women were not part of God's people. Every one of these women were not Jews. They were not Hebrew people at all. They were part of nations that worshiped false gods. They were part of groups and political movement that re resisted God's people. And yet, by God's sovereignty, he includes them in his people. Did you catch it, everyone? Boaz's mother is who? Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute. Rahab was a sex trade worker. There is a great chance that Boaz, the guy we've been uplifting the whole series, is the product of a one-night stand by his prostitute mother. And yet, amazingly, when God's people come to the promised land, it's Rahab who has more faith than even Israel. And God says, I honor that you're part of my people. 
Ruth was a Moabite. She worshiped some demon god. They sacrificed children to them. And she chooses to actually come over and say, yes, I take Yahweh as my God. Here's the point. The line of the Messiah is full of people that we probably would not include, but God includes because he's a God of grace. God is not just a God for the Jewish people. God is a God for all nations. And Jesus' line is full of people, prostitutes, idol worshipers, murderers, the good, the holy, the unholy. God comes for all sorts of people. He meets them. He saves them. He becomes their kinsman redeemer. He buys them back, and he takes their broken but changed lives. And that becomes the place where providence sets the stage for the world to be invited back through Jesus. Here we see in Ruth the love of God for all people. Here we see the pre-work that will be find its, its place in Jesus, then in the church, and then in the world. That's why racism can have no place in the church. Because Jesus is about all people. All people. See, what happened at Babel where God stopped us from rebelling and split us into people groups? Well, guess what? In Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit of God came, he started actually building a new nation with one spirit of all sorts of different people, Jew, slave, Greek, and free, binding us together. And what's the greatest picture of heaven? It's not something called a, a, a mansion of gold. Sorry. It's not streets of gold. That's not the profound picture of the new heavens and the new earth. It's this in Revelation 5, 9. And the people of God sang a song. You are worthy, Jesus, to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased people for God from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. In Ruth, we begin to see that God is not ethnocentric, but God is coming to build a new people from all sorts of people, all sorts of shades and colors and backgrounds and education levels. Why? Because he loves the world. He loves the world. And this is why we always must be wrestling with our heart. This is why we almost, always must be checking ourselves and our motives with people around us who don't smell like us or look like us or, or think like us. Why? Because they're made in the image of God too. And the line of Jesus tells us that God wants to keep including people that are different through his work through Jesus. We see that sovereignty is the essence of our faith. We see the outworking of sovereignty, which is called providence, is to begin to build a new kingdom, a new people called the church, members of the kingdom. And then it comes down like this. The essence of Ruth is found in one word, from sovereignty to people building to redemption. How does someone actually get into this? It's through redemption. Boaz as an adult and Obed as a child are both foreshadows of the baby Jesus and the man Jesus. And Ruth and Naomi become the foreshadow of us if we want it. See, just like Boaz came and redeemed Ruth, so Jesus wants to do the same with us. If you call on him, he, he will turn around and say, I will buy you back. I will declare you are elected and chosen. You are my family. You are adopted now into my people. I will give you purpose. I will give you hope. I will give you new life. You will have access to me, though you should not. You will be given more than you expect and more than you desire. You, you were my enemy you were a child of a nation that was against me. You worshiped false gods or trusted in yourself or did things with your body or life that violate my very DNA. And yet, because of love, though, I will feed you, I will shelter you, and I will declare in the eternal sense you will not be harmed. 
Jesus not only says profound things, but he demonstrates them. His death and resurrection declares that death no longer owns us, sin is no longer our identity, and the demonic don't get to harm us in the eternal sense anymore. Fear gets ripped out at its root by the hand of God. The past is now removed, and we are given a radical new present and a powerful and hopeful and secure new future. That is why Paul would write these letters and these words to Christians like us. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Or in Titus 2.13, while we wait for our blessed hope that is the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself uh, for us to redeem us from all wickedness, to buy us back from all the garbage, and to purify himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Ruth reminds us that sovereignty is significant, reminds us that God is about building something way beyond the boundaries we like putting up, and reminds us that redemption, it is his initiative to bring us back into the fold, is the only essence of our salvation. Ruth reminds us religion has no room in its purely philosophic form, that we do things and God likes us. No, no. God comes for us and he redeems us because he is holy and he's dealt with his wrath and he is love and he deeply wants us to know him. The book of Ruth is a summary of the gospel. As we prepare, as the team comes back, we're going to end in a, in a very, um, I think, significant way. We're going to end with a baptism. Because actually this is the greatest outworking of the book of Ruth. It is the culmination in 2012. It is the sign of providence still happening. But before we get there, as I was praying last night for myself and for you, my family, before I explain this and tie it to Ruth, I, I just want to do this. And for you online, um, I have this striking sense that some of you, and we don't usually do this in our community or tradition, but I think some of us in our community, before we move on to this, need to acknowledge that God is sovereign and that we need to say to God, I'm going to be okay with that. And some of you may even need to say, God, I may never get an answer from you, but I do need joy again, and I do need a renewed voca uh, vocation. I, you may not give me a literal baby, but I, 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 need, I need this. And so before I do this, I'm going to ask if there is any person, and again, I know this is un-Canadian, but if there is any person who needs to willingly say before our community, I need to know sovereignty, I need to submit to sovereignty, or I need a renewed vocation, uh, out of my pain. Why don't you stand and we're going to pray for you. Just do this right now. We're not going to make this a big moment, but just who you are, you know. Stand right now and l let's pray because this, this is the essence of so much. So let's pray for our friends. Just take a moment. Thank you for your courage. Others of you are like, you know, I'm not going to stand. Fine, but let's pray. God, I pray that our struggle as humans would be authentic in this church, that we'd have permission to wrestle and argue and wonder, but never curse you. And for those who are standing here and those standing in living rooms and on go trains and on planes here and around the world, we, we pray this. Oh God, would you not only give these people um, a deep faith that goes beyond the moment, we pray that you'd help them understand providence and sovereignty because at one point or another we're all going to have to stand too. And lastly, we pray this. We pray you'd give them a renewed vocation that there would be a new sense of joy and life and, and there would be a new work of your spirit. You may not give the answer why, but you give something new. God, would you just work this among these people, we pray. 
And we ask this genuinely in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Thanks for joining us today. If you want to know more about C4, get connected to the life of the church, or give to this ministry, visit our website, www.c4church.com.